This is Bibliovile, the terrible book exchange podcast where a wife and her husband get each other the worst books they can find. For this episode of Bibliovile, I read Cheryl Wood's Midnight Cove and Mick read Hex in the City by Simon R. Green. Welcome to Bibliovile, the terrible book exchange podcast. My name is Mick Dickinson. And I'm Susan Dickinson. And we would like to bid you a good morning because it is a coffee Bibliovile today. Coffee time. Coffee, coffee time. time. Although uh, I'm pretty sure you slipped a little bit of Bailey's in your I call coffee. it tongue juice. No, that's wrong. I don't call that's, it that at all ever. I call that's it not to- right. I call it talk juice. Talk juice. Okay. Much better than tongue juice. I think there's a name for that. It's saliva. No, well, maybe where you Please don't from. put that in my coffee. <laughs> Only when they see I'm a cop. Um, we are here to tell you about all the bad books that we checked out a couple weeks ago uh, and read. Now we are going to give book reports on them. Sue, you haven't heard anything about my book. I have not heard hardly anything about your book. The only thing you heard about my book was that it was pretty boring. So, 400 pages long. Much like golfing, par for the course. Yeah. It's nice that we're able to do a morning episode because we both have the day off today, which yeah, is awesome. For Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Mm-hmm. Very nice. Uh, for those of you out there, I highly encourage you to read his letter from Birmingham Jail. It's a Martin Luther King that's not in the I Have a Dream speech because the I Have a Dream speech, frankly, is not that good. Yeah. There were a lot of tweets this morning. Uh, apparently, Fox News went on a tear about how we shouldn't politicize Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Huh. Wonder what in, I wonder right? what uh, uh, rooting interest they have in not yeah. politicizing it. Let's not politicize a political figure. Anyway, so what did we do with our long weekend this weekend, Nick? Uh, we drove all the way around Iowa, and by that I mean up to Des Moines and back to visit our good friends uh, Jake and Amy. Uh, Jake, a listener of this podcast, by the time he, he listens to this, we'll be on our way back from Amy's birthday again next year, I think, mm-hmm. probably, so, he, 2018. He was telling us about the most recent episode that he had listened to, which was episode 13, <laughs> and I'm pretty sure we're on something like episode 40, 40 yeah. at this point, yeah, so... so. Um, I can't say I blame him. If you listen to every single episode within a couple weeks of when it was released, good for you. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate Thank you. Thank both of you for staying Yeah, thanks, so Michelle and Charles. <laughs> yeah, and I'm sure at least one other person. Let Probably. us know. I, don't, I mean, you don't tell us all the good things we do. <laughs> yeah, we just really want attention. That's why we do this. Anyway, uh, Moonlight. I hit a little close to the heart. <laughs> Moonlight Cove by Cheryl Woods. Uh, Nick, would you like to explain? This is one of my favorite parts of Bibliovile. Would you like to explain why you picked this book for me? Um, this is not a usual uh, story of why I picked this book for you. Uh, I think you might not remember because it was a long time ago that we picked out these books. But when we were at the library picking out these books, I really had to poop. <laughs> And so in the library, looking around, I wanted a certain kind of book. I can't remember what it is now, but I wanted a certain kind of book, and I was not finding it, not finding it, and the pressure was building and building and building. And so finally, I just found some of these, you know, uh, pastel-colored, romantic uh, geography books, 
that were on a section and I, I picked out one of them, gave them to you. You tried to give me mine. I said, nope, I got to poop. Check them out first, please. <laughs> and then ran to the public bathroom. And it was a, uh, it was a grand old time. Uh, it was a very good poop, if I remember correctly. Very relieving. So, okay. I know that story probably stunk, but... You know, hey. that sounds about right for this book, though, that this was a poop book. Yeah, and ended up by the toilet. It's this... a lot like my poops where it goes on too long and... Oh, okay. <laughs> Ew. We can stop with the poop talk now. Um, Moonlight Cove by Cheryl Woods is the kind of book that your mom would read. And my mom or like platonic mom? Like the 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 platonic mom. Mm. Um, and I, I think it's like, it's the kind of book that... I think older women who just want something to be able to, like, read casually, which just think is nice. Like, this is a book that I would consider recommending to my mother because I think she would think it's, oh, that's just a nice story. Mm-hmm. And it is. Like, it was a like nice Christmas. story, but it was 400 pages long. Uh, yeah. Author's note, too many pages. Too many pages. Too and many also, words. one thing that I think is very common in books like this is for the entire book to be summarized in a little note from the author well, at you the don't very be beginning. Surprised. Exactly. You want to know exactly what you're getting yourself into. So, in order to describe the plot of this book to you, I'm going to read the note from the author at the very beginning before page one. Dear friends, ever since Jess O'Brien first appeared in The Inn at Eagle Point, You've been asking me to tell the story of this uh, complicated woman. Uh, the inner eagle point brings us to another thing. Why do all these people have beds and breakfasts? So many of these books, they have a bed and breakfast. I think it's just like the, the like, you've mentioned before, like the small business angle or a kind of quirky job is a little bit easier to write, like, no one wants to read about someone who's, like, going to their boring desk job. I think I just came up with a reason. Tell me. The bed and breakfast allows for a domestic sort of uh, picture of a woman, you know, cooking and cleaning and interior decorating, while also putting this sort of masculine presence in the house for the repairs. and Because it's always a, like, unfunctioning bed and breakfast, or she's starting it, or mm-hmm. revitalizing one. And so applying uh, traditional gender norms to a business allows for the introduction of both man and woman in the home. I can see that. Let's look at you. A very, like, literary Literary. analysis of you. Um, Anyway, here it is at last in Moonlight Cove. some college. As a woman who has struggled since early childhood against the feelings of abandonment caused when her mother, Megan, walked out on the family, (laughs) as well as with her long undiagnosed attention deficit disorder. Wowzers, bowsers. Jess has had a tough time getting her life together. A Mm. scatterbrained heroine? You bet. Now, at long last, she has a career she loves as the owner of the Inn at Eagle Point. But so far, love has eluded her. No longer. Will Lincoln has been in love with Jess most of their lives. Also, like, how has love eluded her if she also has a man that's been in love with her his whole life? Friend zone, man. I I tell you, these women just got to look up. The the nice guy is right around the corner. As a psychologist, he understands her (laughs) flaws. He understands her flaws. And explains them to the reader. (laughs) Pretty much. And also to her. Uh, he, uh, He understands her flaws better than most and loves her unconditionally despite them. But it's the fact that he understands her so well that scares Jess. She fears he views her as only some sort of psychological case study. It's going to take a lot for Will to convince Jess that he's the man of her dreams. And on a romantic night at Moonlight Cove, he finally does just that. 
I hope the moment will make you sigh just as it took Jess's breath away. The final words of the book are... (laughs) Yeah. So that's our plot. We have a woman who has abandonment issues and also ADD. That is the plot for these books. That is the only plot. Yeah. If only there's a retired NASCAR driver in here. Chip Hardaway. For a hot second, I was like, I think there is, but that was another book that was essentially identical to this one. The one I read, yeah. Yeah. So this is a series called uh, Chesapeake Shores, and it is about a town called Chesapeake Shores. What? And we've had a bunch of books about other people who live in Chesapeake Shores. But one of the weird things about this book, and something that I found very unnecessary and very confusing, is that all of the people... There are no ghosts. I was really hoping there would be a ghost. Um, all of the people that we've had books about and a lot, most of the characters are somehow related to each other. Gross. The O'Brien family is just like one giant family. Like Hydra. It's got its tentacles everywhere. Exactly. And then all of the love stories are about members of the O'Brien family marrying someone else that lives in the town. So... Another confusing thing about this, not only am I constantly trying to figure out how all of these people are related to each other, but also several characters have very similar names. Ugh. Not even just like there are a billion O'Briens, but like also there is a Connor and a Connie. And that got confusing for a while. There's also a Mac and not one but two Mix. Hey, that's me. That's you. There's two mix in this book. Well, they're they've got an O in their name, so that's practically just like a racial epithet. I know. I mean, they're, they're like, what other name can you come up with for a, a man whose name is O'Brien? Shay. There aren't that many options. There is a Shay. Nice. Um, we just ran out of Irish names, so we had to double up on Nick. <laughs> when in doubt, just go with yeah. it. Um, if this had been a Laura Lee book, was she? Midnight Sins? Yeah. If this had been a Laura Lee book, then Connor and Connie would actually have been the same character, but she would just forget what she named them. Oh, no. Switch them from man to woman. <laughs> Remember when she didn't know her own character's last, last name? Yeah. Oh, man. Those books are bad. That actually makes me feel better about this one. Thanks for bringing that up. You're welcome. Um, so some other plot points that come up. So we essentially, in this book, have the same love story three times between three different sets of characters. So... As you heard in the summary, the main love story is that there are two people who actually love each other, but one of them is reluctant to commit um, due to a variety of reasons, past relationships, and then also, yeah. I don't know where that came from. Turns out that's a really big plot point. What? Mm Mm-hmm. Um, but so there are three different couples that are all going through this exact same thing. And we focus. Stake my claim. Yeah. Mom comes back. Mom already did come back. Oh. So, mom left when Jess was little and then came back in one of the books and remarried dad. Good. Yeah. Um, So, the three couples that are all having the same relationship. So, there's Jess and Will, who is, they're our, like, main focus. And then Will's good friend, Mac, is having the same situation with a woman named Susie that he's been dating for three years but hasn't slept with or, like, committed to at all because she's afraid that he isn't going to... I'm going to be honest. I've already checked out. Yeah, same. And then also there's a couple named Connie and Thomas. So basically, we spend 400 pages telling the same story three separate times, and it all resolves itself, except the next book is about one of those three couples. What? What more do you have to say about Susie and Mac? Um, hey, other, that's almost us. 
other salient. Hey. Um, That's like if people didn't remember us that well. They'd be like, ah, uh, Susie and Mac. Mac? Um, or it's what my grandma calls you. Sometimes. Mac and Mitt. Um, there's also, like, we talk a lot about Jess's ADD. We talk a lot about Jess and her inability to forgive her mom. And then we also have one of Jess's employees also has ADD, and he finds his passion as a chef. And Jess's chef, Gail, takes him under her wing and teaches him how to cook. Um, Actually, Gail is my favorite character. I feel like that is another trope in anything involving an inn, and I think it comes from Gilmore Girls, or maybe just was, like, very popular in Gilmore Girls. But, like, the best friend chef is always, like, pretty no-nonsense, like... Helps take Chefs care of the main nonsense. character. Like, and I actually liked Gail a lot. I, I could have done without literally all the rest of it, but Gail was okay. Um, it and should then have been a also, short story called Gail Makes a Meal. Will has, actually, that would be a good way to tell the story. Like, everything is from the perspective of Gail, and it's like at most a 30 page short story because you could condense all of this into 30 pages <laughs> from Gail's yeah, perspective. Well, I already know how it ends, and I read the, a letter from the author, so. So. The other thing that we include in here is that Will decides to start a dating service for the people of Chesapeake Bay, <sighs> Chesapeake Shores. And it's called Lunch by the Bay, and it's basically like he, people will fill out a profile, he will match them, and they go out on a lunch date. And that's how things get started because Will puts his own name into the system and he gets matched with one of Jess's best friends and she gets really mad. And that's how she starts to realize that she has feelings for him. Lunch by the um, Some other weird things. So the fixation on Jess's ADD is bizarre. How ironic. The <laughs> fixation on ADD. But it's like, that's like a fairly common thing that also can be like treated treated in, in a number of ways but it, she's just like constantly fighting against like people don't trust her or believe that she can do a good job and all this stuff and i'm like well then your friends kind of suck yeah that's not really an add kind of thing like that's you having a shitty network of people that you're surrounded or just by being shitty like don't use your illness as an excuse to not do things yeah um, also, I love in a lot of these books, there is the trope of like the wise old grandmother. Ah, uh, Yoda. Yep. And uh, our Yoda in this book is named Nell, and she speaks only in cliches. Everything oh, I she you're says. Say Gaelic. <laughs> um, another confusing thing is that all of these adult siblings are constantly meddling in each other's lives and spying on each other, and it's super weird. Yeah, as siblings do. But like, why are you constantly, like, they will literally, like, they have this weird communication network where as soon as one of them interacts with Jess, they will immediately call everyone else. And then everyone else will be, like, calling her or coming over or popping by the end to be like, oh, I heard you had this one interaction earlier today. Like, that's creepy and that is weird. extraordinarily creepy, especially because they're calling. Yeah. What? Yeah. Why are you calling? Send a text message. Good gravy. Um... All in all, like, it was a fine romantic, like, love story book. There was nothing, like, particularly awful about it. It just was very boring. Um, I think the one thing it did a good job of was portraying, like, for the most part, like, caring relationships between friends. The family relationships were a little weird and meddly. But a lot of, like... Maybe that's why. Maybe that's why. Like, the friendship relationships were, like, very caring. And I think it did a pretty good job of depicting, like, 
good, solid adult friendships between people who are flawed but love each other, which is good. Um, but damn, this book did not need to be 400 pages No long. book needs to be 400 pages. No. Let's take another claim. Dune was less than 400 pages, and there's some crazy Dune. shit in that book. Dune's Berry is less than 400 panels. It's less than four panels. It's only three. Dunesbury, a popular comic that's in the comic pages. Uh, nope, that one didn't land. I'm sorry. You, I know you got. You might not have gotten that one in Trainer. Trainer's a little red for Dunesbury. Probably. Um, Millard Fillmore Town. Unsurprisingly, this book ends with Jess and Will getting engaged at Moonlight Cove. Yeah. The interesting thing, though, is that they never date. Like they are never a couple. They are just like friends who sometimes they start sleeping together. But she is reluctant to, like, put a name on their relationship or start, like, officially dating. And then all of a sudden he proposes and she says yes. Because apparently with her trust issues, she just needs to know that he's ready to make a lifelong commitment before she'll agree to date him. Yeah, trust issues and commitment issues are usually opposites. Mm-hmm. That trust issues need commitment. Yeah, idiots. Anyway, that was this book. Um, if you need a book to read if you need a book to read or to recommend to your mom it's all right cheryl woods midnight cove otherwise not really one that i would recommend there are other things that you could spend your time on yeah like reading like reading good books yeah who does that who does that um how was hex in the city mick hex in the city a a food or a uh, restaurant type pun if i've ever seen one uh, is pretty much the opposite of yours, where it is delightfully skinny. I know. As as I, I got you a up. really small book, and I was hoping you would do the same. Well, you got I'm me sorry. Midnight Cove or I whatever again. It's only 246 <laughs> pages, but it doesn't feel like it feels like even less than that. Oh, man. Um, take me through what you were thinking when you got me this one. So I wandered around the, like, regular... Our, our library separates out mysteries and then also sci-fi fantasy into different sections. So I was... Walking around, like, the regular non-mystery, non-sci-fi fiction section. And all I was finding were, like, basically the same kind of thing we've done before. Like, a lot of romances, a lot of romances, and a lot of romances. And I didn't want to do that again, which was good because you I did that again. I um, So I wandered over to the science fiction section. And the I, I was originally drawn to the title because I know you love a good pun. Um, I also, like, I, yeah, I, I felt pun. like it was going to be pretty weird and crazy because the, there's a guy on the front who's, like, standing in a cardboard box and he has antlers on his head. Was it goofy? Were there shifters? It was extraordinarily goofy. I don't know if there are shifters per se. The guy in the cardboard box with the antlers is the second show up of... I think we're going to need to start building an Otherworld extended universe. Oh, yeah. With all the characters that hop over. This was like extraordinarily Otherworld adjacent. Mm -hmm. Uh, The God of the Hunt. Ooh. uh, What's his name? Starts with an H. Horus or something like that. Um... It is kind of a uh, American Gods idea where, like, gods actually exist and all that sort of stuff. But since no one needs the uh, god of the hunt anymore, since there's cities and no more forests, he is dwindled in power. And so now he's homeless and Aww. living in the night side. He later dies. Um, oh. Spoiler alert. But before I get into the, the super duper uh, plot of this book, I just want to say that this is a Bibliophile first, mm-hmm. and it took me a very long time to realize that I did not recognize it when she got me the book, but only when I was reading the about the author. Uh, I have read a book by this author before. 
Oh. What was the book that you read? The book, hilariously, was named Death Stalker. And I remember it being entertaining. I don't know. I read it when I was in probably early high school, maybe even middle school. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if it was actually any good or if the fact that the nickname for it's like a space opera kind of supposed to be like Dune, I think, because it's about like houses and the Empire. Yeah. Um. And I remember just, like, bits and pieces of it. Like, the queen is the corrupt one, and she's trying to get Death Stalker to leave his claim or whatever. And so his nickname for her is the Iron Bitch. And I remember, like, oh, I get to read this a lot. And there's, like, gladiator arenas, and there's one guy who's living a a double life between, like, a dandish uh, nobleman, and he's the the reigning gladiator. And there's also, like, a vampire-type thing. I okay. can't remember all of it, but it was, it's, now that I'm looking back and now that I've read this book, extraordinarily, like, genre. Yeah. Right? Like, really deep into it. And this book, as well as extraordinarily genre of a completely different type, this is a hard-boiled, uh, like, detective noir. Uh, a lot of, it's, it was actually really funny. Yeah. Uh, and so, I have always put my foot down a third claim on this uh, episode and said that more environments need to be explored through different genres. For example, Attack of the Clones, the uh, Star Wars prequel, has this, like, for the first 30 minutes or so, has this kind of, like, detective story vibe to it. And I don't think there's anything I'd more rather see than a detective story in Star Wars. I think mm-hmm. that'd be really fun. And so basically this, instead of being, like, a familial B-movie romp like Otherworld is, is a B-movie detective movie through Otherworld. And oh, so, that's kind of fun. Yeah, instead of being set in Seattle, this is set in London. Although nothing English ever really comes through it except for occasional spellings. Yeah. Um, it stars a man by the name of John Taylor, which is a pretty great private eye kind of thing. And it, it is not just any place in London. It's in the night side. So this is the only part where these sorts of things begin to fall apart is that the night side by its very nature is very nebulous. Like it's always 3 a.m. and you there's like angels and demons next to each other. It's kind of like a neutral so it, zone. So it's like a different physical part of London or it's something that happens in no, the nighttime? No, it is a different physical part and also an energetic part and like planar part. Oh, like it's on a different Yeah, it's plane. in. it is in London. Okay. It has a geographic location. They The Romans built Londinium around it. Mm-hmm. It has existed. And so that that's the plot of the book we'll get into in a second. But Nightside by its very nature is kind of whatever it needs to be for the mm-hmm. plot and for its people. And so trying to define the night side in any sort of definitive way is ridiculous and does not work. And so the only thing that this book falls apart at is that the plot is that our main character, John Taylor, is hired by Lady Luck herself to find out why the night side exists and how it started. And so this extraordinarily yeah, nebulous... Yeah, it's supposed to be nebulous, and yeah. then he's supposed to define yeah. it. Yeah, and so this nebulous, like, okay, there's more power for magic here, but is there magic elsewhere? And gods also live here, but mm. do they control things outside of the night side? Like, there's... Imagine if Otherworld was a, like, a ten-city block. Yeah. Right? Uh, but also did exist and didn't exist in the real world kind of thing. Like, so... Okay. It's, it's kind of tough. But, like I said, it's very funny where it's, like always raining because it's london and it's also 3 a.m because it's the night side and so it has this very like film noir feel yeah. to it all the time and our our uh main character is the, like a really great detective sort of stereotype but in a fun way of stereotype uh we start with going into uh 
John Taylor working security because he has this big reputation in the night side. This is a book in a series. Thank you very much. Uh, he has this big Always. reputation. And so he, he is going to work security at an auction because someone has found the butterfly from the butterfly effect. Oh. <laughs> and so if the butterfly flaps its wings, it causes an earthquake somewhere else or whatever. And so it's the butterfly of chaos. And they found the butterfly and they've captured it and are going to auction it off. And so it's this immensely powerful thing. And they want him there to work security. There's other stuff. Uh, for example, uh, this is just an example, or uh, uh, kind of like the other world thing where stuff is just dropped in because yeah. it's a crazy thing. Uh, one of the other options is a Yeti umbrella stand, like a Yeti foot umbrella stand instead of elephant foot. And so they're just going on, you know, uh, the other like workers in the auction house are teddy bears, like that have been, <laughs> that are like six foot tall, uh, brought to life teddy bears. Uh, but they're always like complaining about unionizing. <laughs> Um, <laughs> this sounds fun. Yeah, Lucretia Grave, which is a fantastic name, uh, and she's the the auctioness, I guess. Stepped auctioneer. Up. Yeah, I don't know. Auctioneers podium and gestured for science with her gavel, as well as Wild stood proudly behind her butterflies display case. I lurked at the back of the hall, watching the crowd, and then everything stopped as a huge shaggy yeti stomped into the hall. It was a good eight feet tall, with vast rolling muscles under its grubby white pelt. Everyone shrank back as the great creature lumbered down the aisle, grabbed the Yeti's foot umbrella stand, glared menacingly at one and all, then stomped out again. <laughs> no one felt like trying to stop it. After a discreet pause to be sure the Yeti was gone and wouldn't be coming back, the auction finally got underway. And so it just like drops this in here, it happens, and then it never gets brought up again. I want this person to co-write a book with Yasmin Galanoy. <laughs> I think that would be peak insanity, and I would love it so much. Oh, yeah. Um... The Lady Luck visits uh, John Taylor and his teenage uh, associate at uh, Rick's Cafe. Okay. Because at, uh, in the Nightside, there's all these sorts of, like, you can get imaginary creatures for dinner. Like, that's how nebulous this is, that things oh, yeah. that don't exist you can eat. Uh, and so, Like, you can have, like, a unicorn omelet. Yeah. Or, yeah. Uh, uh, well, unicorns don't lay eggs. Um, that's what I meant. One of the restaurants they're offering to go to is Alice's Restaurant, where you can get anything you want. Right, it's from a song, yeah. and then Rick's Cafe from Casablanca, and they meet, oh, yeah. and they meet Rick, and he gets a table, and it shows how famous John Taylor is because everyone's on the waiting list at Rick's. Someone's Cafe. playing as time goes by, and a piano yeah. in the back. Uh, no, it's in a jungle. Oh, like, like the it's like the TARDIS where it's everything's bigger on the inside. Uh, they are visited by Lady Luck, who's this beautiful, uh, as the author puts it somewhat problematically, Oriental woman. Mm -hmm. But I'm pretty sure that's an Englishism and not a yeah uh, forgotten you know. Uh, I thought this was one of the best descriptions I've ever uh, heard because it. The only thing that's better is when the Lorax says that his teeth sounding gray, or the the Onceler, his teeth sounding gray. Yeah, is the only uh, uh, thing better. Lady Luck has a voice that feels like being scratched where you itched by a very sharp claw. Ooh. <laughs> I thought that was really, really That's good. That's an excellent description. Yes. So she she hires him to uh, find out the origins of the night side, and he knows that it's going to be a big issue because in all the detective war noir movie or uh, like stories, it's yeah. always upsetting the powers that be, and so yeah. they're going to come after you like the status quo. And so he knows uh, that, but he he is uh, interested in this case more than just being money because he his mother who was something mm -hmm. like not a human being was divorced by her his father and then left and so he's, he's never known what she was and he has some magical abilities namely that if he focuses 
uh, using his third eye or private eye. <laughs> That's great. Funny. I yeah. like that. Uh, he can basically locate anything. Okay. And so he knows where it is, but then he has to like go get it. Uh, and every time he uses this private eye, uh, people from the future find out where he is and try to kill him. And so they like send back stuff that tries to kill him. And so he doesn't like to use it except in emergencies yeah. because it like puts them on, puts it's him like on their radar. It's like when you put on the, the ring yeah, and then the, the Nazgul, the Nazgul mm. can see you. Uh, because the reason people in the future want to kill him, po- one possible future, because this also deals with alternate realities, yeah. uh, is because by investigating the origins of the night side, he's going to destroy the whole world. And it's never really okay. explained as to how. And so he, his, uh, you know, hard-boiled dick, private eye, uh, quest for the truth no matter the cost. He's yeah. still going to do it because he wants to know, like, what the origins are. Uh, so he basically takes him all around Otherworld talking to older and older creatures and therefore more powerful and more powerful creatures yeah. uh, to find out, wh- like, what they remember. And the, the best part is that every single time they talk to somebody, each one of these creatures has a different idea of not only why the night side started, but also who his mother was. They all know that his mother had to do with the, the start of the night yeah. side. But all of them have different ideas as to who his mother was. Huh. For example, when they go talk to Merlin, they meet Merlin, who is like this... Uh, he's actually the Antichrist in this book. <laughs> uh, but uh, he's M- Merlin uh, Satan Spawn. He's the, de- he's the son of the devil and a mortal woman. Uh, the only one like him that has ever existed. He was supposed to bring down the world, but so believed in King Arthur and his quest for truth that he like turn to good and it's actually the reason that he never brought down the world is because the devil's like hereditary thing is one of rebellion yeah and so he rebelled against his destiny to be evil he rebelled against the rebellion yeah <laughs> and so he uh it's a good old time he get uh john taylor puts together like this crack team of people to help him and he accidentally like recruits the most powerful people there are there's one guy by the name of sinner mm-hmm. who signed a deal with the devil for true love okay uh, the devil said, okay, it's only going to last 10 years, and then you're going to go to hell, right? And so he says, okay, that's enough. I, I just want to be in true love. And so he uh, gives the, a love to the guy, Sinner, before he was Sinner. The love ends. He gets sent to hell, and it ter- they say, okay, this woman was just pretending to be your love. She was a succubus the whole time, right? And, and appealed to you. The, and she was only pretending. You never had anything. And so he still was like, oh, I don't care. I was in love, and it, it means yeah. everything to me still. And so they could not torture him. Because, because he, he didn't. He, yeah, he yeah. was the only man that loved while he was in hell. Like, other people had done this and renounced, you know. They're like, oh, what a, you know, I was tricked and everything. And so now they get to be tortured. He can't be tortured because he still believes in love. So he goes back to earth and it, he can't go to heaven because he signed a deal with the devil. And so now he basically, like, can't die. Because <laughs> neither heaven nor hell will take we'll him take in. him. Yeah. And what's funny is that the succubus that they sent has, like, basically taken a leave from hell to go hang out with him. Because she wants to know, like, why he fell in love with her so yeah. much. And she's still, like, committed to him. Because he was so committed to her. She's, like, she has her demonic heart attached or uh, touched. So they're still, like, kind of together yeah. and, like, kind of in love. Yeah. yeah. And so the, the succubus's nickname, because he can't have true names or else you have control over them, is Pretty Poison. And she appeal she appears to everyone as their, like, dream, physical, whatever. Uh. And so they go meet a, one of John's friends who's a bartender. And she's like, why is that? Why do you have my ex-wife that got a boob job or something like that? Aww. Like, as an ex-wife with way bigger boobs. Uh, John Taylor sees, like, a 19-year-old in a schoolgirl outfit. Ooh, and that's he, pretty that's, gross. Yeah, it's pretty gross. And he also believes it's gross. And he's, he's saying, like, I saw one too many. I can't remember the name of it. But, like, one too many porns in my formative yeah. years or something like that. So, um so they, those two come along, and then a guy named Madman, who was a physicist, and 
was looking to find the true shape of reality, doing more and more particular physics and phys- and finally he like cracked a certain code and like saw what is beneath reality yeah. and it drove him insane. And also at the same time gave him the power to like shape reality to what he is experiencing it at that time. And so, for example, uh, he uh, plays music. It just mm-hmm. comes from nowhere based on how he's feeling at any given time. And so if it starts getting like amped up, you know, to have to calm him down because if he goes like crazy he's gonna change everything yeah so for example he was there in a library and madman is reading a book and goes oh no that's all wrong and he puts it back and the book is different (laughs) and so they bring him with because he's kind of out of it most of the time but also extremely powerful and he's getting more and more the the main character is like i can't tell if he's getting more lucid or if i'm getting crazy (laughs) because the things he starts he starts saying makes more and more yeah Uh, do we ever meet the devil no. Okay. They, I believe he has before met Satan, but they not in this book. Um, one of I really got to read a Thurian legend because you keep getting me books that deal I with know. Arthur. I really well, got to get that. Even Otherworld, like there are some Arthurian characters, like yeah, Morgane, and who yeah. makes an, or is mentioned in this book, which I believe is Morgane's third appearance outside of uh, Otherworld in these books. Um, so we go back and back and back and back and back and. Uh, we finally, I mean, you should read these books. They're pretty fun. And if you like genre books, they're super short. And I didn't take a lot of books after, or a lot of notes after like page 150, because I was actually engrossed in reading, or not even that, like a hundred, like halfway through, yeah. I was engrossed with reading this. Huh. Uh, they go a couple different places. There is a, an assassin that's after them hired by the authorities and her name is Bad Penny. Cause she always turns up. She has like a magical power to turn up when you least expect yeah. her. And she's the classic like femme fatale of yeah. detective novels. Uh, so it's just a lot of like kind of clever little like explanations of turns of phrase or following a uh, uh, supernatural element to its logical conclusion in a real yeah. world type stuff. The night side we supposedly haven't explained to us how it begins, but once again, since the concept of the night side is so nebulous, yeah. it doesn't make much sense. It was meant to be like this neutral ground where after the Angels' Rebellion. Uh, that both parties could like get together like you could have everything uh i'm not going to go too deep into who his mother was because it's not it doesn't really make a lot of sense especially since i didn't really understand it Uh, well probably would have made more sense if you had read the first couple books probably but at one point when they're like having the showdown with the authorities because they want him to stop investigating Mm -hmm. this because he's causing a lot of issues uh they bring like their combat magicians and they're firing all sorts of magic at him and uh, he's hiding behind the bar, and Sinner is uh, can't die, really, but can be destroyed. And so he's standing, Sinner's standing in front of his succubus girlfriend, and, like, is just getting just blah, 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 blown up and everything by all this magic, and will not move. Like, yeah. he, he's going to sacrifice himself for this succubus that he was in love with, but shouldn't have been, and all that kind of stuff. And she, like, finally realizes the power of love, and it, it redeems her. And so she goes back to being an angel because every angel, you know, every yeah. demon was an angel, supposedly. And so she goes back to being an angel, picks him up, and takes him to heaven. Oh. <laughs> so that's how their character arc ends. That's kind of nice. That is very I like nice. That. But then uh, there's no more human shield, and so the explosions start happening more. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, the mystery of this book didn't make a whole lot of sense, but the, the world that it lives in also does not make any sense, but is a lot of fun. I like that it, like... And that's what I like about one of the things that I like about Otherworld too. Um, our dishwasher's done. Yeah, you can hear that beeping. Um, one of the things I like about Otherworld too is that they're like 
they'll drop in little things that are like Arthurian legends mm-hmm. or like things that you have heard about or like know a little bit of history behind. Yeah. Like kind of subvert them in a certain way, but just like yeah, not really. toss it in here and there. It's always kind of fun. Yeah, so that was Hex in the City, a novel of the night side. There's plenty more. The one thing I think is going to be an issue is I'm pretty sure this is like the fourth book of the series and it's already having him like nearly destroying the world so i don't know where we're gonna go from there you'd think a, a detective series would need a slow build up yeah like bigger and bigger cases i can't think of too many bigger cases than that so, well maybe the plan is for it to only be five or six books maybe, maybe we're getting well, there's, the there's more than that oh. already well never mind um well i didn't get you a bad book but that's okay i feel like everyone deserves a not that bad book every once every in a while, once in a while. Yeah, I'm currently reading like three different kinds of nonfiction, so maybe it was nice to have. It's probably good to have something like fun and silly and explosion-y. Instead of of books about racial reconstruction and all that sort of stuff to make me mad. All the time. All the time. Okie doke, that's going to do it for us this week at BiblioVile. Thank you so much for listening. Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at Susan J. That's S with three U's, S-A-N-J. You can follow me on Twitter at Dickima, or you can follow the BiblioVile account at BiblioVile. That's B-I-B-L-I-O-V-I-L-E, BiblioVile, like, uh, so that we promote the show there instead of clogging up my personal feed. Uh, I would like it if more than four per- people followed it, and yeah, you and I are the two that... I mean, we follow it, so. Anyway, the intro music for our podcast is Babe of the Night by the band Elixir off of their album Rampant. Very nice. Uh, That should do it. We will be back in two weeks. We're going to the library today. We're going to the library today. Have a good day, Charles. This is Bibliovile, the terrible book exchange (laughs) podcast where a woman burps immediately upon starting recording and we read bad books, too. Mick read Hex in the City by a different guy, and Susan read Cheryl Woods's (laughs) uh, Moonlight Cove. We have to redo that.